The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Sox Machine Live. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, as we are streaming live on YouTube.com slash Sox Machine on Wednesday night, April 19th, 2023, as the Chicago White Sox just wrapped up another series, another home series, another lost series, as the White Sox lose two out of three against the Philadelphia Phillies, and they are currently 7-12 and to start the 2023 season. And joining me, of course, is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis, as again, we are live streaming right now on YouTube.com slash SoxMachine, also on Twitch and Twitter as well. So for those that are watching the live stream, you guys can participate with the live stream by posting your comments and questions in the comments section on our YouTube page, again, at YouTube.com slash SoxMachine. For our podcast listeners, you are listening to the audio version of this show from our podcast feeds. And Jim... I am kind of I'm kind of at a loss for words. This is a White Sox team that supposedly is in its contention window. Supposedly, the end game in this season is to make the playoffs and maybe win a World Series ring so Rick Khan could deliver his promise of a parade. And it just seems that goal, that vision is very unfathomable and how the White Sox have started this season. I was thinking about the parade quote, and it's kind of funny if you think about it in terms of, you know, talk to me after the parade is a great way to say, never talk to me. (laughs) I like, that's just kind of how I look at it. (laughs) Just silence. Uh, It's, yeah, I mean, like the, the, placing so much faith in Pedro Griffal and Jeff Head and Mike Tozar, Eddie Rodriguez, Chris Johnson, Jose Castro, everybody they brought in to fix the problem of availability is I think the right now the the fault line underneath the whole thing and watching 
Anderson go on the DL or IL watching uh, Moncada go on the IL watching Jimenez go on the IL come back without a rehab stint look like he needs to go back on the IL uh, it's basically a replay of next year as much as Rick Hahn says he doesn't talk to people who believe the same thing so yeah I mean it's uh, watching the way they played last year uh, made it seem like the postseason was very very far away and the only thing keeping them um, you know in the conversation was a week AL central until Cleveland pulled away at the, in the last month. Now it's a case where like, you know, Minnesota also looks like they've gotten their act together a little bit. So now it's a three team fights and uh, the white Sox are no longer their biggest enemy. They might be like one a, you know, or one B when it comes to you know, who they're fighting one C maybe if you include like the three team fight, but uh, they no longer only have to worry about, you know, themselves. They have to worry about other teams as well. Yeah, let me bring up the American League Central standings because the Chicago White Sox are at fourth place. Okay, like this is where I get a little heated just looking at the AL Central standings. Josh, it's so early. Why are you looking at this? We're not even in May yet. And as Jim mentioned, the Minnesota Twins are currently leading. They've lost three in a row. As we currently stream right now, they are ahead of the Boston Red Sox. By a considerable amount. So the Twins are looking to approve to be 11-7 and seven to snap a three-game losing streak. Cleveland, not exactly a hot start. They're 10-9. and nine. But the Detroit Tigers are 7-10. and 10, And they're currently in third place. Where the White Sox are currently in fourth place. A place they should not even be in. No matter any part of the 2023 season. And well, Kansas City is having one of its worst starts in franchise history right now. Uh, as they're currently 4-15. and 15. And in this particular series, just recapping what happened between the White Sox and Phillies, there are good things. And we're going to talk about the highlights for the White Sox that could be reasons to hope that this team can turn it around. But the bad things, Jim, are just so bad that they just seem like mortal flaws. And we talked about this in Monday's show when previewing the White Sox and Phillies series that You know, the good news, White Sox fans, is that the Phillies bullpen has been just as bad as the White Sox bullpen. Well, thanks to Tony Medina on Twitter tagging me on this tweet, the Phillies bullpen during the three-game series against the White Sox, seven and two-thirds innings pitched, they faced 24 batters, they struck out 12 of those 24 batters, they didn't walk anyone, they didn't allow a run, they only allowed a, a hit, one hit. One weak hit from Elvis Andrews. That is it. They they almost went perfect. The second worst bullpen in Major League Baseball regressed to the mean in this series against the White Sox. Like, it, it's just, and Lance Lynn had a bad start. Mike Clevenger did not look good today. The White Sox bullpen was okay, but now we got to talk about the offense and their lack of sustained success in games. Like, it just seems every time we podcast, Jim, it is new issues that arise that the White Sox have to overcome, and they didn't even fix the other problems that they're running into right now. Yeah, the bullpen was fine. Like, both bullpens were fine if you went in the series not having looked at the numbers or having experienced some of the wild rides the White Sox bullpen put you on or read about the quotes about you know, the, the what the Phillies were doing, you would think, oh, these are two contender-grade bullpens or you know bullpens that you know are not going to sink a team. Other things might, but 
the bullpens were fine. Like, you know, especially after Tanner Banks gave up, uh, you know, a couple runs, like he was fine. He got through three innings. And then Gregory Santos looked like he had the upside. Um, like he's like the new Ho- Jose Ruiz, I think, in terms of uh, maybe be a low leverage tease that never quite gets uh, to medium leverage, but the White Sox can use one of those guys. But yeah, it's a different issue every time. And I think the, the problem is uh, that the offense with their low walk rates, with the non- elite power like not right now their power is like probably bottom half you know middle third um but like you know not quite as bad as they were last year not as acute but still not good not a not not a positive attribute um when you don't have the power and then you don't have the walk rates and you can get on these runs where like uh you're the last 12 are set down in order or pablo lopez is retiring 23 in a row and you're not able to just pump the brakes at all and say like, Hey, you know, here's, here's an inning. Um, that I think just makes the flaws play up so much higher. Like Lance Lynn having a rough start, but game through five innings, uh, that was okay. Um, you know, it's not great for Lance Lynn's like, you know, I guess long-term projections for the rest of the season, but like for the day for the doubleheader, it was fine. Lucas Giolito was great, you know, afterwards. So like they got through the doubleheader. Okay. But then like Mike Clevenger hits a wall and then like, but even then like, you know, giving up five runs, not insurmountable, you know, Taiwan Walker is a good pitcher, but not a great pitcher. Like you can post a crooked number on him, like the way they got Zach Wheeler. And it's just hard with this offense, with the guys either missing or in the case of Jimenez, not looking like himself, that the lineup just dries up real quick. And there's just, nobody is uh, keeping the line moving. The line, uh, you know, everybody takes their turn, three up, three down. And then uh, the line will resume after, you know, the Phillies or, or whoever uh, the Rays coming up are hopefully retired before they score a run and the get deficit gets even larger. We got this comment during the stream from Joe said it's true. One of the unintended consequences to the White Sox starting out this bad casual fans are going to realize very early on that they aren't a contender and that could hurt 2023 revenue. The White Sox are three and six to start this season at home. And not only the three and six at home in the last 90 home games, they're 40 and 50. Like they are not playing well at guarantee rate field. So to Joe's point, Jim, that makes things even worse. You have this six game homestand three against Baltimore, three against Philadelphia, and you go two and four in front of your home fans. And that's going after losing two or three against the San Francisco giants team, which is not very good to start this season like that's the other gut punch nine home games and you're three and six when you should be six and three and if you're going to be defending <laughs> your home territory yeah the royals i guess are one and 12 so thank yeah. god for the kansas city royals putting it all in perspective <laughs> yeah it's you know it's been a mess uh just when it comes to the way this team has been marketed and like the tony larusa thing i think we're learning right now uh that tony larusa was not um, the cause of all the White Sox problems, but like he represented uh, so much that's wrong about the White Sox and that they can't overcome when they take the coaching staff seriously. Like this year, I mean, like it's a matter of talent, it's a matter about talent acquisition, a matter about like forming a team and not having uh, three DHs in the lineup and two have to play the field. Or sometimes they have like, depending on what they want to do with the ground on a given day, like sometimes they have four DHs in a lineup that's, I, I think, you know, why Tony LaRusso was a, probably a terrible thing in two regards. One is that, like, it was a bad idea past his prime, um, you know, not the idea of a 
2020s manager and yeah, out of the game for 10 years, et cetera. But also just like in terms of distracting everybody from the task at hand, which is like building a good team, building a complete team. Uh, they won running away in 2021. So that didn't teach them a whole lot about just, you know, their metal wasn't tested. And then when their metal got tested, they were just completely dysfunctional. And that didn't teach him anything either. That didn't teach him anything in terms of like just what it looked like when he had a proper coaching staff reporting injuries correctly to the front office and players properly reporting injuries to the manager and just having uh, open lines of communication. Like we could have learned with a decent manager that uh, even if they were as broken as they were, and like, let's say AJ Hench, just to throw a name out there, even though he's not covering himself in glory really in uh, Detroit the past few years, but let's just say it's right. AJ Hench instead of uh, Tony La Russa. Uh, AJ Hench, he probably have good lines of communication with Rick Hahn, like just a, a good ongoing accounting of, you know, what Hinch needs, what Han wants to see, et cetera. And so you don't have those clogged lines where Luis Robert is letting go of the bat with the wrong hand for uh, games at a time. You know, if they finish like 83 and 79, you know, with that, that would have taught them a whole lot. But because it was so screwed up and because they still finished 500, I still think there was just a case of um, saying like, well, you know, crazy stuff happened. That was weird, right? Well, back to a normal manager and we'll be fine. And turns out they're not. So that's, I think, what, you know, what really cost them about Tony La Russa. Not so much Tony La Russa himself, but just uh, everything they could try to sweep under the rug because Tony La Russa was such a distraction. Yeah, I we knew that this was a tough job for Pedro Grafal to walk into. But as we mentioned in the beginning part of this show, like – the injuries do make a big difference. White Sox have seven players on the injured list right now. They don't have the left side of their infield and Tim Anderson and Yohan Makata. They make a difference. And maybe they swing some games to the White Sox favor if they are healthy. But there are some problems we did not expect. We did not expect the bullpen to be so inconsistent, even without Liam Hendricks. The starting pitching, who knows what you're going to have from time to time with the starters. Eloy Jimenez is not hitting. Wasn't expecting that. So it's the, the, the expected excuses are valid, but there are some unexpected things that I just feel like Pedro Gafal is, you know, the ship is sinking. He's dumping out the water and then there's another hole that pops up in the boat that he's going to have to try to throw water off the ship right now. And it doesn't get easier for the white Sox, And we'll preview that upcoming series as now they head on the road and they go to Tampa Bay, and they go to Toronto. So I'd love to say, White Sox fans, with optimism that things will get better soon, they can get worse. So let's try to even this out here a little mm-hmm. bit. Let's talk about something good. And I want to talk about Lucas Giolito because in his start Tuesday night in the second game, that is what we've been waiting to see from Lucas Giolito. Yeah, the pitch count got out of hand for him. He threw 102 pitches in six innings. But six no-hit innings against Philadelphia. He only walked one batter. He had seven strikeouts. And I am hoping that this particular start is what launches a hot streak for Lucas Giolito because the White Sox could really use another hot hand in the starting pitching front other than Dylan Cease. 27 foul balls are really the only drawback, and that's not terrible. Like, it's not a case where Giolito racked up a high pitch count because he was wasting pitches or getting into deep counts or falling behind everybody. Like, he was attacking. The Phillies have a talented lineup, and they were uh, doing their best to try to coax him back into making a mistake. But ultimately, like, his stuff was too good. The fastball was 
fine. And the changeup was really good. And the changeup being really good made the fastball uh, better than it looked. And the slider was just kind of a neat pitch, you know, like third pitch kind of inconsequential, but there to uh, be in hitters' minds constantly. So, I mean, that's what you want to see is the fastball changeup combination making it a very easy formula for Giolito to go about his business and then just more matter of executing. And he did that very well. So he had the dead arm start, but everything else has been pretty good. I think by and large, it's not quite at his peak because his fastball was, you know, 93 instead of 94, 95. And I do think that extra mile power makes a difference and maybe turns a few of those foul balls into swings and misses. But, you know, they weren't able to put the ball in play, um, or at least they, the way they wanted to. And seeing Giolito, like, be teased into extra pitches and still not give them what they want, I think was, you know, the, the silver lining of 102 pitches is, like, he threw 102 pitches over six innings and still didn't really make a mistake. Yeah, and he had a 24% whiff rate. So to your point, Jim, like, there are things that Giolito could improve upon. But that gives hope. When it's six no-hit innings, right? It's not it's not Lance Lynn looking for hope. Yeah, you know, Lance Lynn in, ended his start strong. He got into the sixth inning. He allowed five runs to the first mm-hmm. three innings to dig the team a hole. But here are some positive things that we could hope for in his next start that he could rebound. It, it's a, it gives me a lot more hope. I think it gives the White Sox fans a lot more hope. When we're talking about there are things that Giolito could improve upon. His fastball velocity average at 93 miles per hour. His max was 94.6 miles per hour. So if you're in the stadium, that's 95 miles per hour. So he's able to hit that type of velocity. We'll see if he can continue to maintain this velocity and maybe increase it closer to 94 miles per hour because I do agree with you, Jim. If he could throw harder, his four-seamer, he's going to get more whiffs instead of foul balls, and that's going to rack up to be more strikeouts and hopefully in at-bats quicker. So when he's at 100 pitches, he's in the seventh or eighth inning, and if he's got a no-hitter going, then you could talk seriously about him going after his second no-hitter of his career. But it, that's where it gives me hope that Lucas Giolito can get on a hot streak here for the White Sox and gives White Sox fans some confidence that they have a chance to at least win the game. His next start is going to be at, at Toronto. And I don't have a banner for this for those watching in the live uh, on the YouTube stream with a live stream and for our podcast listeners, I'm bringing up the stat cast data for Mike Clevenger. <laughs> I got something to say about this real quick, but uh, yeah, so the, the, the yin and yang here. So go yeah. ahead, Jim. What, what do you got to say about this? If you, if you saw me in the live stream uh, looking off screen and smiling, it's because I glanced at white and the video highlight in the center column below, like the uh, centerpiece carousel thing is a highlight video of Mike Clevenger strikeout. His one strikeout. Yes. It just like <laughs> Mike Clevenger strikeout. Oh, it's 13 man. seconds. They had like the, cause I glanced down, I saw like they were doing like the, uh, uh, you know, side view video of him warming up in the outfield and talking about hit lot line from his previous start, five innings, shutout innings and like one pitch strikeout end of highlight. I, it made me laugh. Yeah. So Clevenger, we've been talking about this when we're not been recording, we've been hinting at this in the group chat for those uh, lucky and very fortunate for them to be part of our veterans committee on Patreon. They've been wonderful to us. We, we have a group chat with them and we, we, we've hinted at this in the group chat. I can't help but fear we are going to see a Matt Latos implosion from Mike Clevenger, Jim. I mean, he gave up two home runs early. 
one to Trey Turner on a slider that was a terrible slider. And then Brandon Marsh took him oppo taco on a fastball that was middle middle. And I can't believe this. When you look at the the swing and whiff rate, four whiffs in total for Mike Clevenger. The Phillies had 37 swings at his pitches. He only generated four whiffs. We made a huge deal about Michael Kopak generating no whiffs on his breaking stuff against the San Francisco Giants. And thanks to uh, John Boy and others to point out that it seemed like Michael Kopak was tipping slightly to Giants hitters and they noticed when he was going to be throwing a breaking ball and the sequencing also didn't help matters. That was something that Jim pointed out as well. But here, if you throw 47 four-seam fastballs in today's Major League Baseball, and the opposing team takes 23 swings against those four-seam fastballs. And you generate no whiffs with your four-seam fastball. Ah, uh, that's not good. And that needs to get a lot better. And he has been better against right-handed hitters. But we've also touched on how bad Mike Clevenger has been against left-handed hitters. And I just feel... Like a reckoning is coming soon when it comes to Mike Clevenger, Jim. Am I, is this premature? Am I premature freaking out? Or after today's start against the Phillies, are, are we going down a slippery slope here with Mike Clevenger? Yeah, maybe he just didn't have like the, he didn't come out of the gate with the juice because he didn't like get to pick a, a really loathsome song to walk oh, out in the field man. to. And that just kind of you know, stole his mojo. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I've, you know, it's hard to buy into Clevenger, you know, even setting aside all of the, you know, extracurricular stuff, um, just the profile. I mean, that's why we were distracted from Clevenger, the person when he was signed is because Clevenger, the ball player was so questionable and just trying to figure out like, is he healthy? Is his knee right? Did he recover from Tommy John surgery all the way? What is his velocity? You know, is he able to get through the lineup more than once? Like there are so many questions that we kind of set aside all of the, you know, what Rick Hahn would call immaturity. And then the investigation stuff breaks out and that turns into a whole separate mess. And we have to kind of circle back and say, oh yeah. And, and he was a jerk too. Uh, and it becomes very unpleasant. So this kind of gets back to the original questions of the Clevenger signing before we you know, started talking about his, you know, Clevenger, the citizen. And yeah, it, it just, the velocity looks better uh, than it did in San Diego, but the life isn't quite there. Uh, the control isn't quite there. And then like the slider doesn't seem remarkable in any way. So it's really just the, you know, it's a one, two punch. He doesn't seem to have a third pitch that he likes. Uh, doesn't have a changeup that gets lefties off him. So there is a very weak pitcher here. I think like the difference maybe between him and Latos is like Latos did have the velocity drop and Clevenger doesn't quite have that yet, but everything else that gave his fastball slider combination, um, the, the, the kind of, uh, life and and electricity that gave him like a number one or number two starter um type numbers for stretches at a time with cleveland like that's not there and if that's not there like he doesn't have the um you know command or the creativity the veteran guile to just get through it and make up his own way like yeah i'm thinking like a miguel gonzalez type who can or johnny cueto is a more recent example somebody who can sequence all kinds of pitches and, and disrupt timing and be good defensively and not allow the base runners to move and just make up all of those, um, you know, make up the loss of edge on his pitches on the margin in so many other ways. Like Clevenger doesn't really hold runners. Well, um, he 
only has two pitches. He doesn't really have a third way of attacking. So it does seem like he, you know, he's more likely to hit a dead end than other pitchers with his track record, with his age, with his velocity might. So yeah, I, I am wary of him and seeing him face a good left-handed lineup that made him throw 44 pitches in an inning. Uh, and he had to sit down after three. Um, it certainly doesn't bode well for when you face equally talented lineups or you go into livelier parks with the, when the weather gets warm and windy, like that's, it, it doesn't seem like his shelf life is very long unless all of a sudden, like the velocity jumps a little bit, which, you know, maybe it could get out of April. Maybe like, you know, he gets in the mid season Clevenger or the slider, you know, improve some bite. Maybe, you know, they have some idea in terms of like what he's doing wrong in a video, but Everything, you know, that kind of requires hope. Like the, the evidence in front of us says that, yeah, he's going to be out of ideas pretty quick. He can't live in the zone. His stuff's yeah. just not good enough to live in the middle of the strike zone. And he finds ways to live in the middle of the strike zone. And when he does, the opposing teams are not missing. When he was really good against Houston to start the season, we pointed that out in, in that episode recapping the series that Clevenger did such a fantastic job staying away from the middle of the strike zone against the Astros hitters. He was able to hit the corners and be up and down in the strike zone and not living in the middle. And the one time he lived in the middle, Jeremy Pena almost took him up Taco and he flew out to the wall. And that was a big sigh of relief for Mike Clevenger. He lived twice in the strike zone today, and the Phillies hit him for home runs. So something to pay attention to for Mike Clevenger in his next start, which is going to be against the Toronto Blue Jays. And if he's living in the middle of the strike zone, the Blue Jays will punish him. So that's my concern right now. To your point, Jim, that Clevenger may run out of ideas real quick. And with so many fires that pitching coach Ethan Katz has to put out right now, I just don't know how much time and effort and energy that he has to dedicate to Mike Clevenger to get him back on track uh, to pitching better. I just, I just don't know. Again, there's a lot going wrong for the White Sox pitching to start the season. And then you go back to the conversation. Uh, does Ethan Katz know how to put out fires? Does he have ideas for a few guys, but not for many guys? That's, uh, I guess we'll find that out by the end of the year. All right, so let's try to talk another good thing here, searching for hope. Let's talk about mm -hmm. Jake Berger and Andrew Vaughn. They continued to rake, especially in the last seven games for the White Sox. To Andrew Vaughn's point, something that I pointed out to in our previews and other shows that I've done this season, Andrew Vaughn had to approve against sliders, especially against right-handed pitchers, because that's how right-handed pitchers were getting him out, especially late last year. And Andrew Vaughn, to start this season, has been much better against sliders when you look at run value on baseball savant and stat cast in 2021 and 2022 andrew vaughn was negative six runs below league average against sliders from right-handed pitching that's one of the worst in major league baseball only javier baez was worse than andrew vaughn to start 2023 he's a positive three runs above average against sliders from right-handed pitchers, and I think his hand adjustment has really helped. It's not power, but he's hitting singles, and he's doing this with runners in scoring position and getting those RBI. So I am hopeful of Andrew Vaughn. If he continues this trend, it will definitely help him overall offensively. Again, it's not a lot of power, but it is helping on the batting average side, and it's helping the White Sox when they do have runners in scoring position, and Andrew Vaughn is up to bat. 
But Jim, we, we talked about it on Monday that Jake Berger made us, made us eat it a little bit uh, with his home runs uh, against the Orioles and, and right-handed pitching. And he continues to do so. I mean, he now has five home runs, and he hit the hardest hit home run in the StatCast era for the Chicago White Sox Tuesday night. It went 118-mile-per-hour exit velocity for that home run. So offensively, there's a lot wrong with the White Sox, but I'd kind of like just to pay attention to these two that at least Jake Berger and Andrew Vaughn are hitting. And I think that maybe Pedro Grafal should entertain the idea of hitting these two guys closer in the lineup. Yeah, Andrew Vaughn, we talked about him and, you know, the lack of homers uh, and lack of homers from like first baseman. And seeing him leave the yard to left field was nice. But, you know, I... I thought it was coming just because he was lifting the ball well to left field. There were doubles, there were line drives. They weren't quite the, you know, 30 degree launch angle. They were more like, you know, 17. So they weren't, didn't quite have the lift to even come close to being a homer, but we saw pitches that he was rolling over the left side, getting over the shortstop this time and, and, and getting to the wall. So to me, it seemed like a matter of time to where as long as he could stay healthy, as long as like the back didn't give out on him or his legs or whatnot, uh, you know, sank him the way that it did with Moncada and took the life out of his bat that like he was on the right track. He was avoiding the mistakes he was making, also drawing more walks. So between like the, you know, hand position being able to, uh, you know, get in front of the slider before it like, you know, hits the bottom half of his bat and rolled in the ground, but also like be able to not swing at pitches that he would roll into the ground. Like the walks are back uh, and the doubles were there and it looked like, with the exit velocities he was posting, um, it looked like the homers are going to come. Maybe not like 30 homer power, but like 20 homers seem reasonable with just the way he was hitting the ball. And sure enough, like today, he had the homer, also had that uh, a great line drive single on a, on a walker splitter, had a fly ball go all the way to the warning track in center field. Like he had the three of the four hardest hit balls for the White Sox uh, on the day. Unfortunately, the Phillies had 16 of 20 hardest hit balls on the game in total. Like Vaughn was hitting the ball hard. Uh, nobody else was burger had like a 98 mile per hour liner, but like Vaughn was doing uh, his work every single plate appearance, which is, I think what the vision was when they drafted him out of Cal, like he was supposed to be able to uh, have the plate discipline and the power and the ability to find uh, barrels, whether it's the pole field, opposite field and just make it feel, you know, for the pitchers, uh, that they just never had an easy time against him. And I think finally we're starting to see some evidence that this is that guy, you know, is it enough to, to anchor a lineup? Uh, is it, you know, it, it, like the Eloy Jimenez type that we thought we might be getting 35, 40 homers. Like if he's not there, will Vaughn's um, will what Vaughn offers feel sufficient or will feel underwhelming? Uh, that's a question to answer later, but in terms of his individual development, I think he's on the right track. I guess the floor is Billy Butler from Kansas City, where Royals fans would always clamor, Billy, you got to hit more home runs, man. But he would be great in run scoring situations and drive up big RBI totals for the Kansas City Royals back in the day. Is that someone that you're thinking of or is there a different type of comp? Yeah, kind of. I mean, like I'm trying to think of the Hawk superlative for Billy Butler. I think he's he's one of the best at hitting good pitching well. 
Oh, I think that's right. the way he said it. Was just like <laughs> uh, the you know, which I think is another way to say like you know, the name on the back of the jersey on the mound like didn't bother him. Like he he was capable of turning in good at bats no matter what. And I can see something like that. I think with more defensive value, like he made a couple of nice plays defensively, uh, a nice little sliding pick, and then started the three six three double play that Jose Abreu was famous for turning. So I have seen some development there too, to where like he looks like he can be an okay first baseman. Um, was, as as some people might have known, might. I've heard some people talk about like the the reach is still I think evident and that like close throw or like throws that make him stretch are more evident than throws that made Jose Abreu stretch uh just because you know the the uh the stretch range is is considerably smaller for Vaughn but I think everything else like you know his defense looks like it's it's improving that the speed of the game is it is slowing down for him there to where like you know, DH shouldn't be the part of the conversation like was with Billy Butler. And that's part of the reason why with Butler, like he was an okay player, a nice hitter, but just ultimately couldn't provide the Royals that much value because they had a few guys that were DHs or, you know, that didn't provide defensive value and they all had to play. Yeah. Now Jake Berger is tied with the team lead of five home runs after his spurt and Andrew Vaughn is still picking up RBIs for the White Sox. So at least those two are hitting for the White Sox. I just, I'd rather see them bat like third and fourth in the lineup and just try to leverage this hot streak right now. Again, the whole idea playing the hot hand rather than having Andrew Vaughn bat third and Jake Berger bat sixth because you can't take advantage of if Berger gets a big hit with Luis Robert on base. Jake Berger right now is a threat to take anyone out of the ballpark in any ballpark in Major League Baseball. And when you put Eloy Jimenez or even Yasmane Grandal in between Vaughn and Berger right now, I just I get this terrible suspicion that if you continue going down this path with how poorly Eloy Jimenez is hitting Jim, that you're going to have Yasmane Grandal lead off a lot of innings with Jake Berger on deck. And... That's Good not speed a great way of generating offense, especially <laughs> speed-wise. <laughs> Can we get the designated pinch runner from the Atlantic League? Yes, that's what the, the White, White Sox, Sox be the pilot need. case, yes. <laughs> but who are they designated running for? Yasmani Grandal because he's the slowest guy in major leagues or Eloy Jimenez because he can't run from first to third without the fear of pulling a hamstring? Uh, I think decisions. right now, oh, I think right now with uh, until Jimenez gets the ball in the air, I think you worry about <laughs> Grandal first. Gosh, I didn't even want to talk about Eloy because it's so damn depressing and how poorly he's been hitting. Uh, other news on the injury front, uh, Pedro Grafal did mention that uh, it's not looking like Yohan Mercado or Tim Anderson will be rejoining the White Sox during this road trip in Tampa Bay at Toronto. And when Yohan Mercado does return to the White Sox, there will be a rehab assignment Good. for Yohan Mercado. Uh, Good. So, yes. <laughs> Watching I, Eloy play like, yeah, rehab since are good. Yes, we'll see if Tim Anderson will need one as well for the time that he has missed. Uh, so it could still be a while before Tim Anderson and Yoan Mikata rejoin the White Sox. So that means that the team that they've got is the team that they're rolling with on this road trip as they visit the Tampa Bay Rays, the Toronto Blue Jays. And we'll be previewing that Rays series in a moment here on Sox Machine Live. One reason why I hate buying tickets to Anything these days is the waiting room. You know that feeling. You get the pre-sale code, and even if you got the pre-sale code and you log in, you're stuck in the waiting room with thousands of other people, not even sure if you're going to get a chance to buy tickets. Buying tickets to 
any event shouldn't be stressful and that's why i've switched and used game time it's the fast and easy way to buy tickets for all the sports music comedy and theater shows near you i use it to buy concert and theater tickets now for chicago events you could use it it's also great for major league baseball games as well they have some killer deals especially when it comes to white Sox tickets as game time is the place for last minute ticket deals forget planning months in advance GameTime has deals on tickets right up to the day of the event, and you can get exclusive flash deals on tickets for the baseball games or any of the comedy and theater shows that will be happening all summer long in Chicago. And what I really like about GameTime is that they have the GameTime guarantee, which means you'll always get the best price. If you find tickets in the same section and row for less, GameTime will credit you 110% of the difference. That's why it's one of the fastest growing ticketing apps in the country for a reason. So snag the tickets without stress with GameTime. Download the GameTime app on your phone, either for Apple or Android devices. Create an account and use promo code SOXMACHINE for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account on GameTime and redeem code SOXMACHINE for $20 off. Download GameTime today. Last minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And for our podcast listeners, a quick PSA as a reminder, along with our friends from the 108, the hashtag 108ingRoadTrip. We'll be in Cincinnati, May 5th through the 7th. We have over 150 people that will be joining us on the road trip. So if you're changing your mind at the last possible minute here, as we're just a couple weeks away, or you decided a long time ago that, hey, I was going to meet up with you guys in Cincinnati, and I forgot to let you and Jim know, Josh, uh, let us know as we are making plans as far as our meetups on Friday pregame and also Saturday pregame as well around the bars at Great American Ballpark, at least across the street in Cincinnati. Can't wait to see everyone for that road trip. Speaking of road trips, it's now time to talk about the Chicago White Sox heading to St. Petersburg, Florida, to be specific, to face the Tampa Bay Rays, as this is the Rays series preview. And I'm going to bring up the American League East standings for those that are watching the live stream and for the podcast listeners. The Tampa Bay Rays are 16-3, and and I have to chuckle because it's such an amazing start for the Rays. And they have scored... 133 runs, which means that they are averaging seven runs a game offensively. And if that doesn't impress you, they've only allowed 50 runs 
in 19 games, which means that they're only allowing 2.6 runs per game. They have scored 50 more runs than the White Sox have in the same amount of games, and they have allowed 59 fewer runs than the White Sox have in the same amount of games played. Offensively, the Rays are number one in team OPS. They've hit 42 home runs already this season. They are averaging 2.2 home runs per game, and they have hit a home run in every single game to start this season. Pitching, they have the number one team ERA. Starting pitching-wise, they have the number one ERA from the starting staff, and the bullpen only has a 2.89 ERA, which is sixth best in Major League Baseball. And the Rays' offense against right-handed pitching, which they're going to see a lot of against the White Sox, have a team OPS of 891. Before we even get into the pitching probables for the White Sox in this series, Jim, The Tampa Bay Rays, through 19 games, I think have put a stamp for everyone in Major League Baseball. There is no doubt this is the best team, the best performing team to start the season because every number that I look at when it comes to Tampa Bay Rays, I mean, everything jumps out. Like, number one in this and number one in that. Like, this is the best performing team in baseball right now. They and uh, The Rays and the A's are basically the top and the bottom of every offensive category and pitching category. Like every time I look at uh, how poorly the White Sox are doing, like, well, they're second uh, worst at this. Uh, the A's are, are, are first or like, you know, the, you know, just, and then you look at the top of the leaderboard. Yeah. Raise, 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 raise all the way around. And, you know, when you look at what they're doing and who they're doing it with, and like sometimes they have an opener and the opener, throws three hit no innings goes perfectly or a starter gets hurt and but they're so good at scrambling for innings that it's like oh our starter got hurt in the third inning he's like an opener we know how to do this um you going back to 2020 and rick rentry in game three and just you know how they try to pull a bullpen game off in a high leverage situation couldn't do it because he didn't practice like the rays are so good at practicing uh, all these scenarios for maximizing every possible uh, on-field advantage with just matchups, platooning, um, churning through pitchers between, um, you know, the, the major league roster and AAA. And, and the league has to keep coming up with rules to try to undermine the competitive advantages they keep finding uh, or coming up with these, you know, Atlantic League rules to try to, like, discourage teams from using the opener. Uh, that's really remarkable. And you look at the White Sox, and, you know, three years later, they still aren't good at solving problems. Like part of it's they don't have players to solve problems with. But when you see like, you know, and, and I saw this, I think, from Trooper in the comments and uh, in, in the YouTube chat talking about like Romy Gonzalez pinch hitting for Oscar Colas just because like Colas is lefty and he's facing a lefty. So bringing Romy Gonzalez, who's a righty, can play the outfield like that's not a solution. That's a prayer. And I think you know, when it comes to the White Sox, uh whether it's because they don't have the talent or what, because they don't have the imagination, it's probably both. You know, that's just how it shakes out more often than not is just fingers crossed. And the Rays don't seem to cross their fingers all that often. No, that's a, that's a really good point, Jim. And taking a look at the pitching problems for the White Sox in this upcoming series. So Friday night, 5.40 p.m. Central Time. I do want to point out this is going to be another playback, another watch party along with our friends from the 108s, as we'll watch this game together, as Michael Kopech will be making the start for the Chicago White Sox. Opposing Michael Kopech is Kelvin 
I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with Foucher, even though it could be <laughs> enunciated in another way. Meet the uh, Fouchers. Yeah, we're gonna go meet the Fouchers here. Uh, Calvin Foucher will be making the start for the Tampa Bay Rays. I've never seen him pitch before. Uh, he only has six strikeouts this year, a 4.15 ERA. He's one of the newer pitchers for the Rays, so I'm sure he will dominate. Saturday, 3:05 p.m. Central Time. This is a national broadcast. This will be on Fox. Dylan Cease on the mound against Shane McClanahan. So a fantastic pitching matchup for any baseball fan to watch. Cease and McClanahan, two of the favorites in the American League Cy Young race, at least preseason-wise, as both have been very good to start the year. Cease only has a 2.01 ERA. McClanahan has a 1.57 ERA to start the season. And then on Sunday, technically it's to be announced as this game will be at 12:40 PM central time, but Lance Lynn will be in line to make the start for the Chicago white Sox as the Rays figure out their rotation as they're overcoming some injuries to the starting rotation. Uh, it's Fauche, Kelvin Fauche, Fauche. All right. <laughs> or Fauche. Like the, like your baseball reference, the uh, first syllables capitalized. So Fauche. I'm expecting Calvin Fauché to dominate on Friday. Let me put it this way, Jim. Are the White Sox going to win a game this weekend? It would seem like they have to. Like, the White Sox are very good at making patterns hold up. Um, Like, last four games, scoring in only one inning. And, uh, you know, I made a joke in the first inning about, like, how, like, if this is their scoring inning, it's not enough. And turns out that was their scoring inning. And, all of a sudden looks like a prediction. Uh, I think they're going to win one out of three. I'm not sure which one, but uh, like just right now, they seem very predictable. And I think if they were to get blown out, um, which, you know, could happen. Like I'm not going to say it won't, mm-hmm. but just it would be, uh, you know, I, I think you know, I, I'd be fascinated to see what Pedro Grafal says that like, oh, you know, we were just, we're hanging in there. Like we're having like, respectable series against the Orioles and uh, the Phillies. And like, if they were dropped into any other calendar, you wouldn't notice the White Sox losing two out of three, given how they played, they played. Okay. They just got outplayed in certain regards, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But like, if they got their doors blown off by like a superior team mixed in with the continually unimpressive showings against teams the White Sox should beat or the teams the White Sox should consider peers, uh, then I think, you know, it's a case where I want to know uh, just exactly how good Griffal is at, you know, saying something different. Because as we're seeing the White Sox bullpen, like James Fegan had a story talking about, you know, Aaron Bummer and uh, Kendall Graveman and whatnot, just, you know, going quotes about, we have to be better, have to be better, have to be better. I'm like, that's all they can say. Uh, you know, there, there are no solutions. They can't talk about like how they're going to alter a pitch grip and their sequencing. So they're just, you know, they're not going to talk shop like that. So they're just going to say, we're going to have to be better. And right now, Griffal's falling into the same trap. Or I think where he's uh, saying, you know, I trust my guys, you know, I'm seeing the work, I'm seeing the work being put in and, if they somehow got swept and you're talking about seven and 15 and being outclassed by a great team after being um, outplayed by okay teams that uh, I'm, I'm curious, like how long he can keep saying that he trusts his players when there might not be reason to trust them. The next 10 games, three in Tampa, three in Toronto, and then a four game home series against the Rays. Like if the White Sox go four and six during this 10 game stretch, that's respectable against those teams, especially when six games are on the road. 
If you go four and six, you're 11 and 18 heading into May. And maybe that's not a grave, but that is a pretty deep hole that the White Sox are going to have to climb out of in the month of May. Now, the good news is in May, they got seven games against the Royals and they got four games against the Tigers. So there's an opportunity to dig out of the hole, but you got to capitalize then. There's mm-hmm. so much pressure on those games when you would think that they're low heat type of games that the White Sox should just walk in and be able to win those games. But now you need to get those wins because you have dug yourself a hole just to get back to 500, back to a respectable level of thinking that you can contend in the American League Central. These 10 games could also bury the White Sox. Like, there's a part of me that wants to say they're going to find a way to beat Shane McClanahan. They're going to score enough, and Dylan Cease is going to pitch well enough to shut down the Rays. <laughs> that and inning is going to be great. That scoring that inning is going to be awesome. Yeah, that one inning is going to be great. They're going to win, like, 3-2, to two, and they finally beat the Rays at home, which, by the way, the Rays are undefeated at home uh, to start the season. They are 10-0 at Tropicana. And we go into Monday's podcast, again, hoping that they could find a way to maybe win a series against the Blue Jays. But the realist in me is like, we could see a seven-game losing streak, Jim. Like, Tampa is far and away playing way better baseball than the White Sox. And I think it's a bit on the crazy side to expect a series win from the White Sox in St. Petersburg. And then a turnaround and then go to Toronto, which the Blue Jays won their series against Tampa Bay at home. And we know how strong the Blue Jays are. If the White Sox are lucky, they'll go two and four in these next six games. And they're nine and 16 heading home for four more games against the Rays. Like, this is a really treacherous stretch here. And the White Sox in 2023 have put themselves in a terrible position to make my worst case scenario again, become a reality in back-to-back years. And that was the one thing I did not want to happen, Jim, because my worst case scenario for the White Sox in 2022 came true. And if they really fall fly on their face, especially these next six games on this road trip, then the worst case scenario that I put on SoxMachine.com before the season becomes true. It's scary to think about it. Just, it's also, you know, given that we're in the business of thinking and talking about the white Sox, no matter what, uh, this is the fate we have chosen for ourselves that it's, you know, (laughs) it's fascinating to think about like (laughs) just, you know, staring down at the abyss and wondering like, how bad does it have to get for like Rick Hahn to feel heat, like legit heat, not just, uh, fans being unhappy and him not talking to the media for a month, but just, you know, you can't, you can't float a rebuild. Like that's the, that's the thing is like, you can't, you know, Rick Hahn cannot float a rebuild. He cannot tear it down. Like theoretically he can. Every time I see the White Sox can't do something, he can, but like the rebuild worked last time because the White Sox were so toxic in, in terms of just the, uh, the dugout situation, Chris sale, Adam LaRoche, Robin Matura, mm. Um, that just fans were relieved. Like we don't care if we're losing. We don't, it's nice not to have hope immediately. It's nice to be able to take the, the next two summers off from, from having our, our hopes riding every game. We'll pay attention to the minor leagues a little bit, just hope for general trajectories rising for players. And we'll 
tune in with our hearts, you know, three years from now and, and be ready for it. But they can't do that again. So that's what I'm, I'm fascinated by. Uh, you know, should there be a downturn? And I'm just kind of preparing for all outcomes. Like ideally, uh, they get into some kind of improbable hot streak, get closer to 500 by the end of the month. And all of a sudden you start feeling good with Anderson Moncada coming back. But I do think like, you know, just the tricky thing about any kind of hot streak, and especially when you're talking about like Jimenez and Moncada and Anderson coming back is like, they could just as well disappear again. And right now we're learning what the White Sox have without them, which is not much. And like watching Romy Gonzalez hit, like I understand Hanser Alberto now. Like I get like why he's around because like Romy Gonzalez is knit and you need somebody to put the bat on the ball from the right-handed side and play some infield positions. And that's probably Alberto more than anybody right now. So that's kind of what we're looking at. And that's pretty bad when we're talking about like, Oh, I get Hanser Alberto because somebody is, is demonstrably worse and, and less helpful uh, when it comes to filling in uh, you know, off the bench. Yeah. Lenin Sosa struggling, but we know that usually takes him some time to get adjusted to a major league level. Oscar Colas has cooled off uh, later in this month uh, as he's going through some rookie struggles now. But those guys are rookies, and you should not be – they should not be carrying the offense for the White Sox. We'll see on how they fare this upcoming weekend. I'm not holding out for high hopes that the White Sox are going to win this series. They're 0-5-1 in series play. I'm expecting them to be 0-6-1. But I'll tell you this, if they could find a way to pull off a miracle and win that series against the Rays in Tampa Bay, Jim, I will be elated. I would be very happy in our next podcast episode. But if they get crushed by the Rays, it's kind of expected, especially with how well the Rays have been playing baseball. I think the least helpful uh, outcome is like if the White Sox don't get crushed, but they lose like two out of three and they barely win the one they win and they lose the other ones by like four runs, which is what we've been watching. Just, you know, more of the same, which I guess, you know, maybe might be helpful based on confirming what we're seeing. Yeah. Like confirming (laughs) what we're seeing, but just when it comes to, you know, getting different answers, getting any kind of sign of things turning around or things plummeting, like just more of the same, but yeah, there's got a comment from Tim. If you can put it up talking about Hawks and Indiana repeating, you're going to win 60, you're going to lose 60. It's what do you do with the other 42 that make the difference. What is, I think they've probably used like eight of the 42 already. I think right now, uh, maybe even 10. Uh, the other thing is like Hawk was like strangely down on the white Sox, And part of it, it he's was. like ripping on, ripping on Brooks Boyer and saying like Brooks Boyer ruined the culture of the white Sox, and that he was forced into retirement and so forth. And like, so even like Hawk isn't, uh, excited about this team and you have Steve Stone, the score talking about like how, uh, you know, they don't have 150 game guys in the roster and the White Sox have to plan around that. And like and the White Sox have not been planning around that, which is one of the reasons why Marcus Semyon was so popular. And I'm trying to remember who it was talking about how Semyon has, or like Andrew Benintendi has already taken more games off than Marcus Semyon has uh, in his first uh, two years, at the Rangers. <laughs> so just, uh Yeah. It's great, but um, I'm looking forward to watching the Rays, though. Like, that's as a baseball fan, I'm looking forward to seeing what the Rays do. And if the Rays dismember the White Sox, I'm, you know, I want to see how and I want to see if there's anything instructive about it, even if it's just like a mid inning shift or like a going to the bullpen in the fourth inning versus the sixth or pinch hitting earlier. Yeah, I'm so curious what they do. 
I wonder if they're even giving the White Sox that much thought, but I mean, given the division they play in, they do have to make every game count. Like they only have like a four and a half game lead. I think is it even with this hot start they're on? Like, I mean, yeah, the Yankees are going to keep American League East is playing well. Yeah. Yankee, uh, the, the uh, Blue Jays are keeping modest. The Yankees are Baltimore, I think is I'm still down a little bit on Baltimore, but they're fine. Like, you know, they're, they're a respectable team. So yeah, I mean, they, they can't afford to slip up. So I think that's probably another thing that keeps them sharp is, you know, iron sharpens iron. Whereas like, What's the opposite of that? Because I think that's what the AL Central is for the White Sox. I was going to put up the AL Central. This is the opposite of the American League East, Jim. <laughs> it's the American League Central. American League East, almost every team is above 500. And you got Toronto and Baltimore already with 10 wins. And they would be leading the American League Central, but instead they're four and a half, five games back at the Tampa Bay Rays. And in the AL Central, Kansas City and Oakland are already nosediving for the number one pick or to try to get themselves in a better position with the draft lottery for the 2024 Major League Baseball draft. It's gone that bad for Kansas City. And yeah, Detroit's below 500. The White Sox are below 500. Cleveland's a 500 team. Yeah, the AL Central's the opposite of the American League East. But at least Saturday's game should be entertaining. Dylan Cease against Shane McClanahan. Again, you guys could join us on playback.tv slash Sox Machine along with our friends from the 108 as we have a watch party Friday night to watch the Rays and White Sox. So we'll get a chance to see the Rays for the first time. For If you didn't get a chance to watch their tour and start to go 13-0, they are very entertaining and they are a very good team. So this will be a challenge for the White Sox this upcoming weekend. And of course, we'll recap that series in the next episode of the Sox Machine Podcast, which will hit your guys' podcast feeds on Monday. And you can subscribe to the Sox Machine Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Spotify and Apple Music. For those that did watch the live stream, thank you guys so much for participating in the comments section with your comments and questions. And if you are listening to the podcast and haven't watched any of our videos, you can and subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Machine. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. You can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. If you enjoy our work and want more, you can help support us at patreon.com slash Sox Machine, where our Patreon supporters get exclusive content. They get ad-free versions of both the podcast and website. And when we have new Sox Machine swag, the first ones to receive it, monthly plans start at $2, or you can save with an annual subscription. Again, you can sign up at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. Sox Machine Live is a production of SoxMachine.com. You're on for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for watching and listening. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance.
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.